Well, friends, my name is Adam. Welcome uh, again to worship. It's an honor to be in worship with you today, whether you're here with us in person or online. I want to give a shout out to everybody who will experience this message later on in the week as well on our website or our podcast. In 2012, my wife Sarah and I were moving to a new rental house in the southern suburbs of St. Louis. And we made sure that wherever we moved was going to have internet service. We were both online students at the time. That was crucial that we have access to internet. So we get moved in, sign the lease, internet company comes out. And as it turns out, our internet odyssey began because two things we found out. One, they didn't in fact have internet at our rental house like they said they could. And two, they were going to send out something called a survey team, which is not good if you want internet quickly. So we lived by some train tracks, which ended up being a complex thing to try and hook up internet around. And I'd reached out to the cable company uh, electronically. And you may think this is petty, but I still have access to this conversation 11 years later. Here's how it went. At the top, I'm like, hey, uh, you know, I just didn't know if we had anything, any progress on this internet connection. Oh yeah, the survey was completed. The train tracks are going to be a problem. It's not in our budget. So the only cost to you will be $10,000. You would think I'm making this up. If I have only 10 grand, that's it. But wait, you got some neighbors on your street. So just go ask them. And if you all three split it, it'll only be 3,300 a piece. Here's the part that gets me. Is there anything else I can help you with today? Oh my gosh, I was hot. Now here's the thing. As a pastor, I have lots of, or just as a person, I have lots of things that make me mad. But as a pastor, I have to pick the ones that are within a threshold of appropriateness to share with you. I was so mad. I, I, I think I eked out, ma'am, I am a Christian. And so I'm going to end this conversation before I say something that I regret. That's the best I could do. I wonder, when's the maddest you've ever been? What'd you do about it? In this series, we've been examining the thesis of author Brant Hansen's book, Unoffendable. And his main point is that being unoffendable is a choice we can make. We can choose not to be offended. That's a choice we can make and maintain. Week one, we looked at Jesus' teaching of turning the other cheek and that as we're commanded, we need to love our enemies, but a love that's not like an emotional one like we may have with our family or our close friends. It's a love the original language of the New Testament describes as agape. A love that is a choice you make. It's a matter of will to hope the best for that person even when they mistreat you. Last week, we looked at being undefendable by our peers and we looked at the scripture where Jesus told his disciples, if people don't accept you, if they reject you, shake the dust off your sandals and keep moving. So we looked at what that would mean in order to shake the dust off our sandals when we're rejected. So to turn the other cheek when we're insulted and shake the dust off our sandals when we're rejected. Now Hanson would say, there's no such thing as self-righteous anger. He would say, none of us are righteous, all of us are sinful, so none of us have any moral high ground on the other. In chapter 13, the title is called, What About Injustice? Are we to be unoffendable when it comes to injustice? 
So he also contends that anger is not a necessary or even helpful motive for responding to injustice. So on this point, I disagree. Now, it's kind of interesting to have a sermon series based on a book and then be like, nah. (laughs) But it's my sermon and that's what I'm going to do. I think our scripture today will affirm that there is a place for anger channeled properly. But I also think it's going to challenge us in some other ways. So what I hope we'll discover together as we study God's word is that our offense is best used in others' defense. Our scripture comes from the book of John. That's one of the four gospels of Jesus. I hope you hear me say this all the time. The gospel is simply a word that means good news. So these biographies are the good news of Jesus, his life, his teachings, his death, and resurrection. The three other gospels besides John are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. A lot of names to keep track of, I know. These three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels. That's because they contain a similar line of events arranged in a similar way. You can think of like a synonym, right? They're the same or they're similar. The synoptic gospels. The book of John, however, is like the cousin Eddie of the gospels, right? Just, it's, it's a li- it doesn't quite fit with the other ones. I didn't know how that would go over. I think we did okay. And I don't, I don't mean to make fun of the book. I love the book of John. In fact, a lot of people would say, if you've never read the Bible, the book of John's the best place to start. And so you'll see what I mean, that the book of John is different from the synoptic gospels, from the other three. You'll see that as we move through the scripture. We'll pick it up in John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So in the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the similar ones, Jesus confronts people at the temple after he enters Jerusalem. That happens toward the end of his ministry. But as you can see, we're only in John 2. So John places this event at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now, we could take a few things from that. One would be that Jesus went to Jerusalem and went to the temple more than once. I, think, I find that perfectly reasonable. Or another explanation could be that John is less concerned uh, with the chronology of, of Jesus' ministry. And he wanted to place this event early on for a reason. The writers of the Gospels all had different contexts that they were writing to. They all had different audiences in different ways they addressed those audiences. And so just like in the court of law, you could have eyewitness testimony that may not be identical, but it is consistent. That's how we can think of the four gospels. They may not all be identically the same, but together they provide us a fuller picture of the life of Jesus. Now what's significant about this episode we're going to read about in the temple is that it does occur in all four gospels. That doesn't always happen. And so whenever you see that, it's an indication that this is a significant event in Jesus' life. There will be major consequences when we see them in all four Gospels. So Jesus has come to Jerusalem for Passover. Jerusalem was the religious capital for the Jewish people. It was their ancestral home. And Passover was their holiday, their celebration, their remembrance of of the Jewish people's escape from slavery in Egypt. It's one of the highest holidays in the Jewish faith, even into modern times. And so men who lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem in the first century were required 
to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. And it was said that Jews all over the world, no matter where they lived, longed or aimed to celebrate at least one Passover in their ancestral home of Jerusalem. And so during Passover, sacrifices were made at the temple. These were animal sacrifices that reminded people that sin has a cost. And so they offered animals as a sacrifice to pay for their sins so they would understand the consequences of sin. And the temple was the center of Jewish worship. So that's a lot of information, but this helps us understand the context and brings us to verse 14. In the temple courts, he, he's Jesus, found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So annually at Passover, like we said, animals were sacrificed, and each family paid their temple tax. So that's why the merchants are selling animals and people are changing money. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But now in verse 15, some of y'all get this reference. Jesus goes DMX and says, y'all going to make me lose my cool up in here. 15 and 16. He made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Jesus fashioning a whip, scattering coins, flipping tables. This does not seem like the Jesus a lot of us grew up looking at this picture of, does it? My pastor and mentor in St. Louis, Michael, he called this Cocker Spaniel Jesus, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> does Cocker Spaniel Jesus look like he'd get a whip? No. He looks like he's selling insurance somewhere. So this image of Jesus we have needs to be adjusted if this is what we think of. Cocker Spaniel Jesus ain't it. But we're so, that's what we're accustomed to. I mean, this is the Jesus who told us to turn the other cheek. He's making a whip. How do we make sense of this? Well, we need to pay close attention to the object of his offense. You ever been to a marketplace when you're out on vacation? Could be a flea market here in the States or a marketplace somewhere out in some other country. There's a lot of wheeling and dealing that goes on, right? There's a lot of commotion. There's a hum. There's a din. I was with a youth, uh, youth group uh, several years ago uh, in another country, and we went to one of these markets, and one guy was selling uh, counterfeit Rolexes, and I thought that was hilarious. And so I asked him, hey, how much for one of these watches? He said $75. I said, $75? It's a fake. He goes, it's a genuine copy. <laughs> It's a genuine copy. I give you a good price. Oh my gosh, I still laugh about that. So that's that that like the the negotiations, the 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 posturing. That's part of the experience at these markets. That's where business is being done. This is what's taking place at the temple. The temple was a place for worship, and Jesus takes offense on behalf of his father. He says, "Stop turning my father's house into a market." Now, the setup of the temple included a variety of courts. You have, you have the entrances. and You couldn't just go anywhere if you were just anybody. So the center of the temple, the most holy place, was reserved for one priest one time a year. Then the priest could go in that holy place. There was a court just the, the women were only allowed to go into. Down here was the court of the Gentiles. 
the court of the Gentiles. Gentile is a designation for anyone who's not Jewish. That's where the, the folks who weren't Jewish were allowed to be. And that, the court of the Gentiles, is where scholars think all this was taking place on the, on the outskirts of the temple here. And so what you had happening was all this commotion in the temple, excuse me, in the court of the Gentiles. So people are trying to draw near to God for worship, the only place they're allowed, and instead they're met with cows mooing and doves cooing and sheep neighing. Joseph Dongel is a biblical scholar uh, that I learned from in seminary. And one of the resources I looked at this week, he said, all things considered, it appears that Jesus' displeasure was directed toward the placement of valid temple-related commerce within the temple courts themselves. The merchants should have set up their wares anywhere outside the temple or at large markets outside the city. This is what Jesus was offended by, the location. Now, why does he use a whip? Well, some of you have agricultural backgrounds. What do you use to drive animals? A whip. He drove all from the temple courts. Now, after the 8 o'clock service, an actual farmer told me, you know, we don't use whips anymore. He did tell me to Google what a paddle rattle was. And so I look forward to doing that after church. So Jesus drove all from the temple courts. I believe all is describing all the animals. It says all the sheep and cattle in John 2. There's nothing in this text that indicates that Jesus was running around whipping folks. So from the John 2 text alone, it's clear that Jesus was outraged on behalf of his father's temple, being a site not where people are welcomed into the father's presence, but instead distracted by the checkout line. This was the object of Jesus' offense. Now, if we look at the story in some of the other gospels, we may get some further clues. In two of the synoptic gospels, there's that term again, good retention, we read, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers, Jesus said. He said that in both Matthew 21 and Luke 19. So it's also possible that Jesus was not only offended on his father's behalf, but also on behalf of people being taken advantage of. You ever bought a cell phone charger at a hotel? You don't want to. Anybody remember how much you pay for those things? About four times as much as you would normally. Anybody ever bought batteries at Quick Trip? Woo! If you got to get some AAAs from Quick Trip, you're in trouble. They charge you for it. They charge you like way more because they can. Well, a similar dynamic was happening at the temple. The law required that the animals sacrificed weren't like the runt or the cross-eyed one. You had to give like your best livestock, all right? Well, guess what was for sale at the temple? Flawless livestock. That would have been, they wouldn't have accepted. It's like no outside drinks accepted. You got to buy the $8 water at Kauffman Stadium or wherever, right? Same, same dynamic. Well, you can buy your animal here and you're going to pay for it. And so Jesus was upset at the concept of people being exploited. Or how about this? You ever go to an establishment and they only take cash, but they got the ATM for you, which they'll charge you a $7 fee to use, Right? Similar dynamic, uh, the Jewish law required that the temple tax be paid in the Jewish currency of the shekel. 
And remember, there were people from all over the world pouring into Jerusalem. So you couldn't just break a 20 and get shekels back. They would charge you a fee in order to do that. Mark eleven seventeen, the other synoptic gospel, also records the story, but with three additional words. One more detail we get. Similar scene, Jesus saying, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus was infuriated because the people acting in his name were at best inhibiting people all over the world from worshiping, and at worst, they were exploiting those same people for financial gain. That's what set Jesus off. Turning over tables and driving out herds of animals on others' behalf. During his arrest, Jesus behaved very differently when he was personally being insulted and persecuted. During his arrest, when one of his followers pulls out a sword, he says, put your sword back in its place. And when Jesus was on trial as an innocent person, Scripture tells us he remained silent and gave no answer. So Jesus was personally unoffendable, but consistently spoke out on behalf of God and on behalf of others. So for me, the takeaway is that righteous anger does have a place when it comes to confronting injustice. Now, probably not as big of a place as we'd like all the time, or not everything will probably meet that threshold all the time. But for me, the story of Jesus cleansing the temple tells me that our offense is best used in others' defense. Now, as we've said in this series already, you can't control how you feel. Right? We can't always control our emotions. And there's a long list of injustices in this world for us to be angry about. And we all get angry. But think back to the thing that made you the maddest from our beginning of our time together. Was that something that happened to you or someone else? I'm guessing most of us could list injustices that are not right and make us very angry. So the question is, what do we do about it? What are we going to do with our anger? I think there are times when anger can serve us well when we're using it in the defense of others. Paul Sohn is among others in calling this concept holy discontent. This is how he defines it. When you experience an uneasy spirit about the brokenness of this world, which aligns with the heart of God that spurs us to take positive action to change the world. I love this concept of holy discontent. Because like Jesus in the temple, the offense is not about us, but about others. It's not about our preferences, but about aligning our will with the heart of God. It's about positive action that impacts the world for the better. I think part of our problem is we get confused and we think anger equates to activity. And so if we pop off about something on social media or we rant about it in a sermon that we've actually done something, we shouldn't confuse anger with activity, but instead help use our anger to fuel real action that leads to positive change in the world. This is Candace Leitner. Her daughter, Carrie Leitner, was killed in May of 1980 by a drunk driver. Her grief fueled her purpose, Candace's. And in October of 1980, Candace Leitner founded Mothers Against Drunk Driving. My assumption is most of us have heard of MAD, M-A-D-D. 
They've advocated for the national drinking age to be 21. There was some disparity between different states. They've rallied and, and lobbied for legal changes, for blood alcohol limits while driving, among lots of other things. According to a Washington Times article, a study done in 1994 revealed that between 1980, the founding of Mothers Against Drunk Driving, between 1980 and 1994, the annual drunk driving death rate decreased 43%. Our defense is be- our offense is best used in others' defense. I think this is on display when Jesus cleansed the temple of the merchants and the money changers. The passage we studied from John, I think, is a really jarring one. This was a, this was a challenge for me personally this week. Because we're not used to conceiving of Jesus like this. Right? It's good to be reminded that Jesus is not a domesticated, mild-mannered philosopher. He is a fierce and loving Savior. It should serve us as a word of caution that Jesus' most intense criticisms are reserved for the most religious people. Sometimes we think we're doing a good job, but it's the opposite. Sometimes we think we might be helping, but we're actually repelling someone from from accessing God's presence. See, all those animal merchants and money changers, they thought they were doing a good thing. They were providing people with the means that the law required for them to worship as the law demanded. But their actions were actually repelling people from God. And for that, Jesus has zero patience. None. He made a whip. What I realized this week is it's much easier to read the story from the vantage point of of one of the slighted Gentiles in the crowd of the Gentile court. We like identifying that way when we read the story. It's much harder to read ourselves into the money changers or the merchants chasing some cow out of the temple gates after Jesus drove it off, thinking we were working on God's behalf when in fact we were doing the opposite. I hope after hearing the story from John 2, our sermon graphic makes more sense. In the upper left-hand corner is Jesus wielding a whip. Now we had someone ask us last week, maybe with a bit of humor, I'm still not sure. They asked if Jesus was holding a bunch of balloons. <laughs> see, 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 we like balloon animal Jesus, don't we? It's, it's okay, everything, you're fine just the way you are. We like balloon animal Jesus. He'll tell us it's okay and give us a poodle. We don't like Indiana Jones whip-wielding Jesus so much, do we? These are very different images, and it's jarring. Jesus driving out those who would drive away access to his father. Friends, as followers of Jesus, may we be unoffendable when it comes to ourselves. Turning the other cheek when we're insulted and shaking the dust off our sandals when we're rejected. May we become angry at the right things for the right reasons and use our anger 
use our offense in others' defense. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for today and the chance to be together. Help us be both challenged and encouraged from the reading of John 2 today. Help keep us from thinking we're acting on your behalf when the opposite could be true. And help us to check our motives with your will. God, whenever we feel anger, may you give us the wisdom to help channel it in ways that are positive and productive and disruptive in order for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.